Well, we want to welcome you to Faith Bible this morning. We're glad if you're visiting with us. Uh, we like to have a lot of fun, and, and if you're visiting with us as your first time, we have a uh, book. It's called An Anchor for Your Soul. If you fill out the uh, information section of the bulletin and turn it in the resource table in the back, um, a young fellow will be there. He'd like to give you a book it's, uh, as a token of our appreciation of you coming out this morning. Well, Pastor Jason's on vacation this week. Uh, I hope he was listening to that, my son. And uh, he's, uh, up in he's up in Pennsylvania actually visiting with his family uh, today. But uh, we're going to continue in the series uh, that he's been in Ephesians chapter 4, Change from the Inside Out. Uh, two weeks ago, he talked about the power of change, talked about how every Christian is changed or should be changed when they come to know Jesus as their Savior. He talked uh, how that change should result, as it says in Romans chapter 4, a newness of life. Last week we looked at seeing a family resemblance, and uh, we talked about how our lives should resemble the life of Christ. And according to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that's God's plan. He predestined us to become conformed to the image of His Son. That's God's plan. He planned in advance for each and every one of us to know Jesus is our Savior to become like His Son. We should look like Him. As a matter of fact, that's what we're going to be talking about later this morning. God's plan is that Jesus should be reflected in every aspect of our life, how we live, how we think, and how we walk. So the question last week was, do we resemble Christ? Does our life reflect that Christ that lives in us? And that for every believer, others should see Jesus in us, that Jesus that we claim lives within us, and the Jesus that we claim has changed us. This morning we're going to be back in Ephesians chapter 4. You could turn your Bibles or your devices to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in the first six verses. And we're going to continue to see, we're going to see how Paul continues to challenge us in our walk. As a matter of fact, the word walk is a key word in the second half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6. It's a key word, walk. And today we want to ask the question... Who are you? Who are you as a believer in Jesus Christ? What is your identity? Uh, who do you identify yourself with? It should be Jesus. Do you identify yourself with him? And how do others see you as uh, a believer in Jesus Christ? Hence the message is entitled, Who Are You? Let's, uh, we're going to read the first six verses of Ephesians chapter 4. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version this morning. Paul writes this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The first six verses of Ephesians, as Pastor Jason reminded us, Ephesians could be called the Grand Canyon of Scripture because of the vast wealth and depth of biblical teaching and doctrine. We, lost, we, we learn in, in the earlier chapters about such key doctrinal themes as election, redemption, Adoption, predest you are predestined, as I just mentioned, 
uh, the sealing of the Spirit, how salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone. And the first half of the, the book, Paul's exploring these great biblical truths of the gospel. Uh, in the Bible Project says this, Paul shows us how all history comes to a climax in Jesus and his creation of this multi-ethnic community of followers. And the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, is a practical teaching, uh, a yet important teaching about the Christian life. Paul shows us how the gospel should be re affect how we live our everyday lives. And personally, in our jobs, in our homes, our families, our, our communities, our neighborhoods. Uh, the, and the Bible Project also says this, he challenges the reader to respond to the gospel story by how they live their own life story. The key word in the second half of this book, as I mentioned earlier, is the word walk, right here in verse 1 of chapter 4. It's a key word in the, this, this last half of the book, and it has to do, as we, as we shared last week, it has to do with our manner of life, our behavior. As Pastor Jason mentioned last week, it's how we live our life, our walk. And it's in the Greek language that the grammar there is such that it t talks to so much that it happens in the past. He says he wants us to walk. It's a, it's a reality. It emphasizes the reality that th that takes place. It emphasizes that that walk should be an intentional, rational, and deliberate decision on our part at a point in time to move in that direction to live a life that's worthy and pleasing to God. So we're called to deliberately and intentionally live our lives in a way that is pleasing and glorifying to God. And the word literally means that there must be a sense of urgency to accept this responsibility. And how are we to walk? It says in verse 2, we are to walk in humility, in gentleness, with patience showing forbearance to one another in love. And then it goes on to say in verse 3 that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're supposed to be diligent. The new uh, international version says make every effort to preserve unity. That being diligent, it, has, it means to do something with an intense effort and motivation. Being diligent, intense effort and motivation. And we are continually to pursue, pursue unity with an intense effort out of our motivation to glorify and please God. As a matter of fact, the main idea of this passage, the main word in the second half of Ephesians is walk, the main idea of the passage we're looking at this morning is the unity of believers in Christ. And this word unity has this idea of oneness, and that literally means a state of oneness. In other words, it's, it means we, we should believe as though we were one person. We believe in one and the same way. So verse 3, we could tra be translated, make every effort to work together as though you were all one person, all of one mind. And this is simply a practical application of the doctrine that was taught in the first half of Ephesians where Paul is challenging us to live the gospel in our daily lives. 
Look at chapter 2, beginning of verse 19. Excuse me, 2, verse 19, where Paul uses the analogy that God is building a temple out of his people. A, a body. In verse 19 of chapter 2, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God and the Spirit. The analogy of the body of Christ is a temple. He's using this analogy. He's talking about Jew and Gentile being come together in one body. He has reconciled, Jesus has reconciled both Jews and Gentiles to himself in Christ. Look at verse 13 in chapter 2. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, so that he himself, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Paul teaches that the church is now a new multi-ethnic family comprised of both Jew and Gentile. Gentiles have, have now have access to be part of that covenant family. We just read that in verse 18 of chapter 2. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Jew and Gentile are now one, a new unified humanity that lives together in peace. That's, a, that's also from the Bible Project. A new unified humanity that lives together in peace. We see that the church is one big family with a diversity of people. We're all different. In case we haven't noticed, we are all different, and yet we are one, one big family. The oneness of believers in Christ is a spiritual reality, according to what Paul writes here. He emphasizes they are one, this idea of unity, of working and thinking together just as if they were one person. And that word one is also a key in this passage. Let's go turn back to chapter 4. Turn back to chapter 4 where we began. Paul tells us that the church, that we, the family of God, are in verse 4, one body. He says that we are unified by one Holy Spirit. He says we are called to one hope, and that hope is Jesus Christ. Hope is, in this context, this word in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the Bible is not one of uncertainty. It's certainty because of our relationship with Jesus. Call to one hope. They have one Lord. Verse 5, they have one faith. They have one baptism. And they believe in one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. This points to the idea of unity within the body of Christ. There's oneness of spirit and mind. Warren Wearsby says uh, in his commentary about this passage concerning unity, unity does not mean uniformity. Unity comes from within, and as a spiritual grace, uniformity is a result of pressure from without. Unity does not mean uniformity. 
Pastor Jason taught us that last week. He says it's an attitude that while we are all different, we're all to have this attitude. And Paul really drives that home. He's talking about this new entity, the church, that is made up of two distinct kinds of people. And that's what our church is. We are a family of God comprised of very different kinds of people. And that's why he uses the analogy later on in chapter 4 and, and, and other places, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12, about the human body, the, the body of Christ, the family of God. He, he ana the analogy is to that of a body. That each part of the body is different from the other parts. They all have different functions, yet they all make up one body and should be working together. With each believer, they're using their unique talents and passions to serve and love each other and to build up the body of Christ that they are a part of in a spirit of unity, in a state of oneness. And we are to do that, it says, we are empowered by one Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to do that. I can't think of a better illustration to drive that point home than the 1980 United States gold medal hockey team. Anybody around when, to watch that when, where you old folks, come on, you guys are there. All right, we watched that. I remember watching that. Uh, it's, it was, it was an awesome uh, game. They played the Russians, or the Soviets at that time. That, that, that picture here on the top portion of that picture was at the end of the game. That game was called the Miracle on Ice. Uh, the United States was, uh, uh, the Soviets were heavily favored. The United States was a, an underdog. Uh, underdog. Um, the, the Soviet team had won four consecutive gold medals. Uh, they hadn't lost an Olympic game uh, in, since 1968, and really, if, if you remember the Olympics back then, they were supposed to be amateurs, but the Russians, those guys were, were really profession, professionals in their country, and uh, of course, by contrast, the United States team was made up of uh, amateurs who came from all different colleges, and they were the youngest team in U.S. Uh, history to play in the Olympics, and they were the youngest team to play in that Olympic tournament. And what was their secret? How did they, how did they pull that off? Well, their, their coach, a fellow by the name of Herb, Bro Brooks, Herb Brooks, had a special process to select a team. He, the players were not always, only, always chosen because of their hockey ability or their athleticism. He had a special skill test he had to determine if these, these players could play under stress. And he was looking for players that were committing to playing as a team, not as individual stars like some of them were used to doing. He wanted them to be laser focused and committed to the goal of winning that gold medal. They were unified. That's how they won that, that Olympic gold medal. They were unified. They played, like we, the word we're examining here in this word unity, they played just as though they were all one person. They played with a single-minded attitude. And it's the same kind of attitude Paul is talking about here in Ephesians chapter 4 in regards to unity. And the same attitude Paul is teaching believers should have in their local body of Christ. But just wanted us to think is, do we always think that way? Do we always have that single-minded attitude of unity in, our, in the church? 
Do we work together with others within this local body just as though we were all one person? Do we have that single-minded attitude? I'm not sure that's always the case. I know we, we all have ministries we're involved with. Uh, we have ideas that how we'd like to have things done. And sometimes we're not all always pulling the wagon in the same direction. But Paul is telling us that we have the same purpose, to exalt Christ, to share him with others. And we have to have that kind of attitude if we're going to accomplish the work that God has placed us here to do in Vineland, New Jersey in 2020. Paul uh, was a prisoner in Rome, and in spite of his circumstances, he was exhorting us to do that. He had, he had that attitude. He didn't look at his circumstances. His attitude was still, he's writing to his fellow Christians in several books. We see that. He had this single-minded purpose. His concern not for himself, but for Christ and the gospel. Very familiar verse in Philippians where he also wrote from prison. It says this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This single-minded attitude. Warren Wearsby in the Bible exposition commentary says this single-minded attitude is this. It's the attitude that says, it makes no difference what happens to me. Just as long as Christ is glorified and the gospel is shared with others. Let me read that again. This single-minded attitude is an attitude that says, it makes no difference what happens to me, just as long as Christ is glorified and the gospel is shared with others. Not an attitude that's shared by our culture, is it? Paul looked at his circumstances for, uh, sent by God, his circumstances. He was in prison and God ordained that. He saw them as a purpose for exalting Christ. And he had this attitude. He could have this attitude, this single-minded attitude, because of who he was. He was in Christ. Twenty-one times in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses the phrase, in Christ, or in him, 21 times. And that is precisely how he saw himself. He saw himself as in Christ. Christ was who he was. Christ was his identity. And, he, and Christ was who he identified himself with. When I think about this idea of identity, I think about my father. My, there's a picture of my parents uh, when they got married. And you can see where my son gets his dashing good looks. It skipped a generation. Uh, that was my father. He came over to the United States in, in 1933 from Italy, uh, and uh, he became an American citizen, and, and then that's a picture of him. He, he actually served in the U.S. Army in World War II, and he became an American citizen, and he loved this country. It truly became his home. One time he went back to Italy after he was, he was an old man. He was in his 60s like me, and that he had only gone back one time because the United States, his, his family, his country was what was important to him. He was foremost and first and foremost and proud to be an American. He was very proud of that. Uh, he, the story, we just saw the Olympic gold medal uh, 
hockey game. I can remember watching that game with my father who had no love for sports whatsoever. He had no idea what was going on in the sports world. As a matter of fact, I went to try out for football one year uh, in high school, and I used to work with my father, so I had to take the day off, and uh, they started, you know, summer camp training, so I went, went the first day, and I came back, and he says, okay, you're coming to work tomorrow. I said, well, I have football. He goes, well, you, you went for today. That's it. <laughs> and, and that was it for me. That was the end of my football career. I went, I went to work. So uh, better off for the football team anyway. But he had no love for sports. Yet I remember like it was yesterday, sitting in our living room watching that game and seeing the excitement of him cheering, this little Italian guy cheering for the United States hockey team because that was, they were representing the country where he loved. That was his identity. All right, that, that was his identity. Yeah, or even our, our family, our, we, we kept some of our heritage, didn't really learn the language, mostly eating and food and those kinds of things. But we were taught to love and respect our country, respect our leaders, be good and conscientious citizens. He instilled those values in us, and those values are still instilled with me today. But like my father, there was a change in my life 26 years ago. I received Jesus as my Savior, and like him, and for many of us here, I became citizen of a new country. As Paul wrote in uh, Philippians chapter 3, I became a citizen of heaven. Like my father, my allegiance changed, and for those of us who, who trusted Jesus as our Savior, our allegiance has changed or should have changed. Our, our new citizenship is what should be of paramount importance to us. In the same way America became first and foremost to my dad, the Lord is what became first and foremost to me and what should become first and foremost to all of us. While America is a place where I was born and raised, a place where I love, I love my Lord more, and he, because of the place where he has transferred me from and to, he transferred me, he rescued me from the domain of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved son. So for a little bit of the rest of our time this morning, I, I wanted us to be reminded of who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ. If someone were to ask you who you are, what would you tell them? Would you tell them, I'm a Christian American? Or would you tell them, I'm an American Christian? Are you a Christian American or an American Christian? You may say, well, that's Pastor Frank, that, both of the, that sounds like both of, those of those, both of those are the same thing, but they're really not. One emphasizes being an American where the other emphasizes and prioritizes being a Christian. So if you turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, I want to talk, look at, quickly or, or in our time together, the rest of our time this morning, in the book of Acts and Paul's example of what it meant to be who we are in Christ. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. And here the, the context is Paul has been returned to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. And uh, while he was there, he got into a con conflict with other, uh, as he went down to the temple. Um, 
they saw him come into the temple and because he had, they assumed there was one of his cohorts there who was not a Jew, uh, they, they started to cause some problems. If you look at verses, verse 27 in chapter 21, verse 27, it says, And when they, the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the multitude and laid hands on him crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is, this is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously, they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. All right, so Paul gets into a conflict with these fellows who are accusing him of some things. And it caused Paul problems. In verse 30 it says, And the city was aroused, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. The city was in an uproar. Paul dragged from the temple into the streets and about to be lynched, and then it says the Romans stepped in here. Let's look at verse 31. While they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion, and at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came up and took hold of him, that's Paul, and ordered him to be bound with a change, and he began to asking who he was and what he had done. All right. But what does Paul do? We, we don't have time to read it all. Paul reacts to this situation. They took him away. They bound him. They arrested him. The, the Romans did. And he, they took him away. And then Paul, in, in chapter 22, uses this opportunity to do what? Complain? No. To suck his thumb. Well, look what happened to me. No, he shares the gospel. He shares what Jesus Christ had done for him. He shared his testimony. And if we turn to let's go to if we turn to chapter 22, verse 21, we see that Paul was about to be flogged because, by the Romans because the crowds had become hostile to him. Let's look at verse 21 in chapter. I mean, verse 22 in chapter 22. It says, "And they listened to him to the statement, and they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth.'" Or he should not be, for he should not be allowed to live. And they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, and the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by f scourging or flogging so that he might find out, so he might find out the reason why they were shouting against him in that way. All right, Paul's about to be flogged. For, for what? Doing what God's called him to do. And then what happens? Verse 25, Paul pulls out his trump card. Not to be affiliated with anyone else named Trump. He says this, And when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? Paul was a Roman citizen. Let's read on to see what the re reaction was to the centurion. And when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. 
And the commander answered, I acquired the citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let him go, and the commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman, and because he had put him in chains. Paul was a Roman citizen, and he had all the rights and privileges that went along with it, as, and he used those rights and privileges here. And Paul wasn't a naturalized citizen like my father who had to come over here and become one, or like this Roman commander he had a, who paid to get his citizenship. Paul was born a Roman. And we know the rest of the story. Paul was released uh, briefly, but got into another confrontation with the Sanhedrin. And then Paul was taken to Caesarea in chapter 23 of Acts, where he appeared before the governor, Felix, Roman governor Felix. He remained there for two years in Caesarea, and then uh, Felix was replaced by Festus. And as you turn to Acts chapter 25, verse 10, Acts chapter 25, verse 10, we see Paul defending himself here using his Roman citizenship. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also know, also, as you also very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then, the, then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, you have applied to Caesar, and to Caesar you will go. And Paul goes on to Rome, where, where really God had wanted him to, to be, where he was going to write the book of Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon, where Paul was going to have a great gospel witness. If you read the first chapter of uh, Philippians chapter 1, Paul had an influence because the, the, a special Roman guard was guarding him, and he shared the gospel with them. See, Paul went to do this. Paul, see, didn't use his Roman citizenship uh, lightly. Uh, he was no doubt proud of it. He identified himself as a Roman citizen, which, which were the privileges. And as I said, he exerted those rights. But Paul, but what did he do? What did he use his rights for when he was going through these trials? Not for his own safety. He used them. He used every opportunity to glorify God to spread the gospel, to tell people about the promised Messiah, even when it could have cost him his life. What, why, and why was that? How did this happen in Paul's life? It was, and I think we all know the answer. It was a result of his relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ had so changed his life as he wrote in Philippians, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I want to read some verses. If you're taking notes, uh, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but I'm going to read some verses. It talks about how Paul's life was changed as a result of Jesus Christ. It says, knowing in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, he says, knowing this, that our old, man, our old self was crucified with him so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. In Galatians, 
I love this verse. I have been crucified with Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And the end of Galatians in verse 14, he writes, May it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I unto the world. Paul was a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul's identity was in Jesus Christ because of Christ had so changed his life. Paul's identity was not as a citizen of the great and powerful Roman Empire. We, we read this verse, Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven. His, his identity was not in his ethnic background. It was not in his Judaism. Paul was a prestigious Jew. He had a, a, a prestigious position within Judaism. In Philippians chapter 3, starting in the middle of verse 4, he says this, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And here's his credentials. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to, to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those I have counted, I have counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. His, his identity was not in his ethnic background. As, as a matter of fact, he writes this, continuing in that same passage. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing not value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, whom I have suffered, I have given up, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. His identity was not in his Roman citizenship. His identity was not in his ethnic background. His identity was, was bound up in his relationship to Jesus Christ. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says this. He's about his relationship being bound up in the person of Jesus Christ. He says, For I determined to do know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 2 Corinthians verse 5, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, compels us. It controlled him. He says, The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. He writes Colossians chapter 3, writing from the same place in Rome. He writes these words in verse 3. He says, For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. For the apostle Paul, his life was in Christ. It was hid with Christ, God. It was hid with Christ in God. Paul had a new master, the one who controlled his life. In Romans chapter 6, verse 17, Paul writes, But thanks be to God, though you were slaves to sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. He was freed from one 
master, and now he had a new master, and that master's name was Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians verse six, chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, a tremendous price. You have been bought. You belong to Christ. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, we, the passage that we we're talking about this morning, Paul opens that passage. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord. That's how Paul viewed himself. Not in a negative way. He had a master. He belonged to Christ and he had a gentle master, and he was willing to serve and live for him. Christ had so changed his life. As I said, he was fully devoted to him. Paul still was a Roman citizen. That didn't change. He still followed it and respected the laws. And as we saw, he even used those to his advantage. He was still a Jew and retained his Jewish culture and, and heritage. I'm certain he was proud uh, to, to retain those. As a matter of fact, if we read in other places in Romans chapter 9, it talks about he had a burden for his Jewish uh, fellow Jews. He, would have, he said he would have given up his salvation if he could have for them to come to know Christ. So he was still a Jew and proud of that. But his allegiance, his priority was to neither one of those was not to Rome, was not to Judaism. It was first and foremost to his Savior. Paul had that single-minded attitude. He had the attitude that says, it makes no difference what happens to me, just as long as Christ is glorified and the gospel is shared with others. He was single-minded. Let me repeat that. He, I know I repeated this before, earlier, but he had this attitude that says, it makes no difference what happens to me just as long as Christ is glorified and the gospel shared with others. Paul is pleading us in here in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning these opening verses. He's pleading with us to intentionally live every aspect of our lives in a way that will bring glory to Christ. So are you willing, as he was, to be diligent in pursuing that calling? Being diligent, are you making every effort toward that goal out of a desire to please Christ and to please God? Paul's telling us we are to have a single-minded attitude, an attitude that puts Christ, the gospel, and others first. He writes these words in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct, your, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I will hear that you are standing firm. Listen to this. He said, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. We are to serve in unity. The idea that says we believe as though we are just one person. We are to serve with that idea that we are believe as just that we are one person. And I'll repeat this, we, we're going to have the attitude that says it makes no difference what happens to me, just as Christ is glorified and the gospel is shared with others. Like Paul, we should be determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So do you look at your circumstances as sent by God for the purpose of exalting Christ? 
And really, as a result of that, uh, do we recognize that we, like Paul, that we are in Christ? Is that our identity? Do we know who we are, who we truly identify ourselves as believers in Jesus Christ? I think most of us, not many, all, or all of us, would we say we believe this. We understand it intellectually. We understand it theologically and doctrinally. But do we understand this functionally? Do we understand it in a practical way that we live it out in our daily lives? Warren Wiersbe in the Bible Exposition Commentary says this, It does make a difference what you believe, because what you believe determines how you behave. I'm going to read that again. It does make a difference what you believe, because what you believe determines how you behave. Mike Foster, who used to be the director of Philippi the Philippines, World of Life Camp, adds to that. He says, And how you behave is determined by what you believe. So it makes a difference what you believe, because what you believe determines how you behave, and how you behave is determined by what you believe. So who we are, our identity in Christ, is of the utmost importance in our Christian life. Did Paul consider himself a Christian Roman or a Roman Christian? He considered himself a Roman Christian. Christian that being a Christian was his priority. Was he, was he a Jewish Christian? Yes, he was, but he was a, a, a person with a Jewish heritage. But was a, his priority was being a Christian. So my question to you this morning is, who are you? Do you consider yourself an Amer a Christian American? A person who is American, who is first and foremost an American, who also happens to be a Christian? Or are you an American Christian? Jesus Christ is your life, or you just happen to live in the United States? Obviously, the answer is we should, should consider ourselves American Christians. And for us today, in 2020, as a side note, that's an important way to think. We have a very important election coming up. I'm not here to promote politics, but for us as believers, it's important for how we go about discharging our, our citizenship here in the United States. I'm not here to promote one party or the other. There's one party that promotes, a, as John MacArthur says, if you, there's a little video, uh, some vignettes that John MacArthur has produced, and he, he talks about this uh, very explicitly, but he says is there's one party that promotes a Romans chapter 1 agenda. They're, they're anti-Christian. An, anti they promote abortion. They, they have changed what, the, what we consider what is, what is a marriage. They have no regards for the nation of Israel, and they have no regards for our rights as Christian to worship freely. The other party is pro-Israel. The, the, the other party is pro-life. And, and the other party is, is, is supporting our First Amendment rights, not, for, not so much uh, for freedom, uh, well, it's for freedom of speech, but so much for us to be able to worship and do freely as, as, as our forefathers, who were Christians, had intended us to do. And really what John MacArthur goes on to say is that we as Christians, there should be only one way we should vote. But he said our real priority, though, and I really like what he says, is the gospel. Us as believers that live in the United States of America, it's to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ. So our identity 
our allegiance, our priority is first and foremost to Jesus Christ. So are you like Paul, determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified? Is Christ your life, as he talked about in Colossians chapter 3? Is your life hidden with Christ in God? Can you really say as Warren Wiersbe does, it makes no difference what happens to me just as long as Christ is glorified and the gospel is shared with others? As I mentioned before, we believe this intellectually, we believe it theologically, but do we practically believe it? Do we, does it fleshed out in our lives, our daily lives, every day? Remember, it, makes, it does make a difference what you believe because what you believe should determine how, how you behave. What's going to change our world is not only our leaders and laws and, and reformation. What's going to change our, our families, what's going to change our church, what's going to change our community, our country is revival. But that revival has to start with us, brothers and sisters. For many of us, we have an American version of what it means to be a Christian. We have an American identity rather than an identity with Christ. My prayer this morning is that as we looked at this passage and we looked at the life of Paul, it would cause us all to re-examine our lives, to see what our true identity and motivation is. If you're here today and what we're talking about about having an identity with Christ means that you have to have, a, have had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He had to become your Savior. The question for you right now is not, what is your identity in Christ? But can you answer the question, do I know for 100% certainty as I'm standing here before you today that you know that you're going to heaven, that you have eternal life? What are you depending on for your eternal life? If it's your good works, if it's coming to Faith Bible Church, those are all good things. If it's being a good person, but that's not going to get you into heaven. That's not going to get you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, heaven is a free gift, the Bible says. The wage, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's a gift that's free, and the reason it's free is because we are unable to earn it. We don't, don't deserve it because of who we are. We're talking about our identity. If we don't know Jesus as our, as our Savior, our identity is that we are sinners that are condemned to an eternal crisis eternity. And God, in his love and mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take our place on the cross. The penalty for sin is death. And he took our, our, our death, our punishment on the cross. So that in exchange, when we put our faith and trust truly in, in Christ and him alone and what he has done, and we ask Christ to forgive us, then we can have eternal life. If you've not done that this morning, you've not done, you're not sure that you're going to heaven, please don't leave without talking to myself or someone that you know and trust about, that could tell you about Jesus, how you can have a relationship with him, how you can know that you're going to heaven, and how you can be identified with Jesus Christ. For us to know Jesus as our Savior, as I mentioned before, I pray that this would challenge us to reevaluate our lives. The time may be short. Don't know when Jesus is re returning. We look around at our world today, and it 
looks like it could be soon. We have to be busy about what God's called us to do. And I hope that today would motivate us and encourage us to look at who we truly are and what Christ truly would like us to how live our lives for him in, this, in our community. Father, we do thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the, the example of the Apostle Paul. Father, I, I pray that there's days where I, I, I can't say that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I, I pray you'd forgive me for that, Lord. Father, I, I pray that I would live each day to the best of my ability to bring you honor and glory and that I would be able to share this precious gospel, Lord, if that's what you've called us to do. I pray for those of us here who know Jesus as we go out into our neighborhoods, our families, our communities, our workplaces, our schools, that you would give us the opportunity to reflect, as Pastor Jason says, to resemble Jesus Christ. Father, would people see our identity in him? And Father, would you use that to draw people unto yourself for your honor and glory? For those here who don't know Christ, Lord, please don't have them leave without making sure they've done that. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the privilege we have to live in this nation, to be able to worship freely, to share this, your word and your truth, Lord. Please go before us this day, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand up together and sing the first verse of chorus.